Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of child death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's your first real job. The first time you're responsible for something outside yourself. An empty house, two sleeping children upstairs. You have the night to yourself. You only have to watch. They have a designer closet and a big screen television. The homework you brought pales in comparison. So you indulge yourself, only a little, just a moment or two, enjoying the solitude in an opulent house. But it only takes a moment for an intruder to sneak upstairs. And once they're through with the children, you may run out of moments entirely. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Urban Legends, be sure to check out the rest of the Parcast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Today, we examine an urban legend that's at home in any suburban neighborhood, the babysitter and the man upstairs. In it, the phone, the most important lifeline for youngsters, is turned into a weapon of psychological torture. In a worst case scenario for any babysitter, a stalker threatens not just their life, but the lives of the children they're being paid to watch. Although many elements of the story change as it moves across the country, there are a few key elements that stay the same. A teenage girl is left alone with a child or children who have already gone to sleep. The phone rings. Sometimes she's threatened by a stranger. Other times, she just hears dark laughter on the other side. By the end of the night, the kids are dead. She didn't even notice it happening. Sometimes the police save her. In other tellings, they find more than just dead children. While teens pass around this story as a cautionary tale, a few versions describe the children pranking their babysitter with the scary phone calls in order to run around unsupervised. But bad things can happen to unsupervised kids, especially when there's no babysitter to protect them. Sydney adored babysitting, even though she hated children. They were gross and loud and wanted so much attention. But they would have to sleep eventually. 
Once they were out of the way, Sydney got to snoop through someone else's house and get paid tax-free. Tripp and Cecilia were just like all the other first-grade kids she'd taken care of before. They ran around the house for hours and wanted to play all kinds of games. She let them tire each other out and then ordered a pizza. When their stomachs were full of cheese and grease, she told them it was bedtime. After far too long a fight, Sydney got them into bed. They drifted off as she read them the same chapter of the same fantasy book she'd been reading them for the last three months. Sydney watched them sleep for a few moments, then headed down the hall towards the master bedroom. As one would expect from a couple that would give their children such old-fashioned names, the parents were wealthy, obscenely wealthy. Designer accessories were strewn about the bedroom. Even the toilets were integrated into the smart home system. If the pay wasn't so good, she'd be tempted to steal from them. She was confident they wouldn't notice. Instead, Sydney took her bonus by playing dress up. She stripped down and then slid into an evening dress, handmade in a Paris atelier. It hung oddly in the front and was too tight in the hips, but she felt like a model. She admired her reflection in the mirror, letting the light play over the fabric. The landline in the kitchen punctured the night's stillness. She nearly jumped out of her skin, and she felt the hips of the dress stretch as the seams started to tear. Mrs. Ambrose was going to kill her. The phone kept ringing. Sydney froze, not wanting to answer it. If Mrs. Ambrose was calling to check on the kids, like she sometimes did, Sydney didn't want to answer the phone while wearing the torn dress. Parents always knew when something was wrong. She turned in circles, undid the zipper, and stepped out of the dress. She threw on her jeans and tank top and took the stairs far too quickly. She sprinted down to the kitchen, but couldn't make it before the phone stopped ringing. Sydney sighed. There went her tip. She was reaching for the handset so she could check the caller ID when the ringing resumed. She stared at the ringing phone. It was like it could hear her guilt. She took a deep breath and then picked up. Her voice shook as she spoke, but she managed a simple hello and prayed that whoever was on the other side of the line wouldn't notice. It was her best friend, Diane. Sydney nearly collapsed from relief. Mrs. Ambrose didn't know anything was wrong. Maybe if Sydney hid the dress in the back of the closet, Mrs. Ambrose wouldn't even notice that it was torn. Diane wanted to come over with a few boys and watch premium cable. Sydney shot that idea down as quickly as she could. Playing dress-up was one thing, but she didn't like the idea of bringing people over. The space was too big. They could break something or steal from the family, and Sydney wouldn't even know what was amiss. Her friend called her boring. Sydney rolled her eyes. Diane was the queen of hyperbole when she was disappointed. Sydney told Diane that she'd call her later tonight and hung up. After destroying Diane's dreams, Sydney padded back upstairs to the master suite. The dress still lay in a heap on the floor. She picked it up and considered the tear along one of the darts in the mermaid gown. She'd never been great at home ec but maybe she could fix it. As she held the dress up to the light, she caught a shape in the mirror. 
She glanced behind herself, but there wasn't anything there. Sydney laid the dress on a chair and headed for the hallway. One of the kids must have woken up. The phone blared again. Diane was relentless. Sydney decided to let it go this time. She needed to check on the kids. She snuck into Tripp's room first. He was so still. Sweat made his bangs stick to his forehead. She whispered to him that she'd give him cold pizza and dino nuggets if he woke up. He didn't respond, so she shut the door behind herself and headed for Cecilia's room. Cecilia had turned to the side in her sleep. Her hands were tucked under her chin, like an angel. Sydney whispered to her that she'd let her play The Floor is Lava and the Dolls Are Ritual Sacrifices all night if she woke. The phone screamed downstairs. Cecilia slept on. Sydney exhaled a sigh of relief, backed out of the room, and closed the door. Tripp's door was slightly ajar. She must not have shut it all the way. Sydney closed it again, and then headed back down the stairs. The phone was still blaring through the house. She lost her patience and strode towards the kitchen. As she picked up the cordless, she heard heavy breathing on the other side. She warned Diane if this was some kind of payback attempt, it wasn't going to work. The voice on the phone laughed. It wasn't a teenage giggle. It was deeper, darker. He said he'd never been called Diane before. Sidney stammered an apology and explained that the Ambroses weren't at home, but she'd be happy to take a message. He told her that he wasn't calling for them. He was calling for her. Had she checked the children? He asked. Sydney froze. She walked slowly toward the front of the house, checking to make sure the door was still locked. She rushed past the wall of two-story windows in the Ambrose's great room. The size of the windows gave her a chill. You could see the whole house from outside. As she went, she explained to him that she'd never had a stranger call for her before. He told her they weren't strangers. They went to school together. She asked for his name. There was a smile in his voice as he told her, Stuart. Sydney mentally ran through the list of friends and friends' boyfriends at school. She didn't know any Stuart. After making a quick excuse and an apologetic request that he come up to her in the lunchroom sometime so they could really meet, she hung up the phone. The phone was ringing again. It could be someone else, but she wasn't willing to take the chance. She found herself suddenly hyper-aware of her surroundings. She carried the ringing handset with her to the back door. It was locked. The front was safe, too. And the windows. The ringing finally stopped. Then, immediately, it started up again. She pressed call, but didn't put the phone to her ear. Sydney waited a few seconds and then pressed end. He called again. If this kept going, he was going to wake up the children. Mrs. Ambrose wouldn't be happy if they were awake when she got home. She'd be even less happy if she thought Sydney was making personal phone calls and was too distracted to do her job. Sydney pressed answer. Stuart was back. His voice was deceptively warm, but she could hear the steel underneath it. He didn't like being ignored. Sydney didn't know what to say. 
Stuart sighed impatiently. He was getting bored. His mind wandered to bad places when he was bored. Sidney forced a laugh. She told him to get over himself and hung up. The phone rang again. She picked up again and told him to stop calling. Stuart laughed bitterly. He told her that he wished she hadn't hung up on him so many times. Whatever happened now was on her hands. His disappointed sigh gave way to the end call tone. When we return, Sydney receives a house call. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Sydney dialed star 69, but couldn't reconnect to the voice that was calling her over and over again. They were idle threats, she told herself. This guy who called himself Stuart wouldn't really do anything, right? Figuring out her schedule and the phone number of the Ambroses didn't mean he was planning to hurt her. Maybe he was just shy. Diane knew everybody. She would knock some sense into him the next day at school. Just in case, she surveyed the kitchen. There were a few knives and a wooden block and a pair of kitchen scissors. Sydney doubted she would be able to stab someone, even if it was for her own survival. She couldn't even eat meat. She wanted to laugh at herself. A series of phone calls, and she was already contemplating being a final girl. She needed to breathe. She heard a floorboard creak over by the stairs. Her hand shot towards the knife block, almost of its own accord. She removed a steel chef's knife and turned her gaze in the direction of the sound. She could do this. She was the babysitter. It was her job to keep the kids safe. She was resolved. She shoved the handset into the back pocket of her jeans and adjusted her grip on the chef's knife. Final girl, here we come, she told herself. She had to check the children. She knew what had made that creak. It had been the third step of the stairs leading to the children's rooms. Sydney had caught Trip trying to sneak downstairs for a snack after bedtime enough times to recognize it. But Trip had learned by now to skip the step. It couldn't be him. Someone else was in the house. But to reach the stairs, she had to cross the dark living room. It was massive, only lit by the frozen explosions of the action flick she'd settled on watching earlier in the night. She had loved the giant entertainment center and massive couch. Now, all she could see was how much furniture filled the room. There were a million places for someone to hide. She tried to keep her grip on the knife firm, but it was already slipping in her sweaty palms. Sydney approached the staircase. She lifted her foot carefully. If Stuart was in the house, she didn't want him to know that she was onto him. She brought her foot down slowly, searching for any kind of sound. But nothing came. 
The third stair lay in wait, as if mocking her. She raised her foot, then gingerly lowered it onto the step, hoping it would not squeak. The phone made her jump. The knife clattered to the floor. She lost her balance and flailed wildly for the banister. Her fingers made contact, but the sweat on her hands made it impossible to grip the wood. Instead, she slid backwards through space, falling. The impact knocked the air out of her lungs. She could feel where the bruises on her legs would be tomorrow. But all that mattered was the phone. She didn't want to answer. If it was Diane and her new boy toy, she'd feel like an idiot for falling for some stupid revenge prank. If it was Stuart, she didn't know what to expect. If it was Mrs. Ambrose, she didn't know how to explain her fears without sounding like she'd finally lost it. But the phone was also in her pocket. If someone was in the house, they could hear the ringing. They would know where she was. She hit answer and stammered out a hello. Stuart was back. He told her that he'd been very busy in the five minutes that they'd been off the phone. Stuart wanted to know if she missed him. Sydney said yes, happy that she didn't have to lie. The silence that lingered after his threat was too much for her. Now, at least she had him where she could hear him. It was better than nothing. She could hear the smile in his voice. He liked being missed. And now that he'd given her a taste of what could happen when she made him mad, she'd do better in the future. Sidney agreed with him. His absence was a terrible loss. Stuart laughed. His absence wasn't the punishment. He needed both hands to deliver his punishment, and he liked keeping her in suspense. The silence was just an appetizer. Sydney's blood ran cold. Her mind raced with horrible scenarios. Pain, destruction, death, all visited on her and the children. As if sensing the change in her mood, he told her that she'd just have to do a little digging, maybe in the backyard. Sydney checked the windows. It was too dark for her to see outside. She flipped the switch for the yard lights. The backyard was undisturbed. He laughed again. The sound made her skin crawl. He said it was up to her to clean up his work. Oh, and she might want to put some more clothes on, he added. It was cold out there. Sydney looked down. She was still only in the camisole she'd yanked on after the dress debacle. There was no way he'd know that unless... The floodlights outside suddenly turned off. Sydney hung up and dialed 911 call waiting beeped in the background. She couldn't switch the phone line. He had seen her, not at school, but in this house. He was here. The operator asked what Sydney's emergency was. Sydney couldn't find the words to describe it. He'd threatened her, hadn't he? The events were slipping from her grasp, a tangled series of images and sounds tinged with fear. She told the operator that she was babysitting. Someone was in the house with her. He said he knew her from school, but she didn't know who he was. She didn't even know where he was, but he was using the phone to taunt her. The operator told her the line was for genuine emergencies, not high school shenanigans. 
Sydney's voice cracked as she asked for help, swearing that she was in real danger. The line went silent for a moment. The operator began to take her information. Then, the line went dead. She rushed to dial again, but... Stuart was back in her ear again. She could almost feel him breathing behind her, even though she kept her back to the wall. He told her that once again, she'd done the wrong thing. But he had prepared for that already. The clock was ticking. She might want to find his surprise before the police did. They wouldn't be pleased with her. Sydney didn't know where to look. She went back towards the stairs. The knife she dropped was missing. His words echoed in her mind. Had she checked the children? She grabbed one of the bars on the stair railing and pulled, yanking it away and sprinting upwards. She was doing exactly what he wanted. But her feet carried her up the stairs anyway. She threw herself through the door to Tripp's room, nearly falling through the entranceway. It felt darker than it had been earlier. A few fragments of light were jagged against the black, revealing a wall of toys, their blank eyes all watching her. Her fingers trembled as she flicked on the light switch. He looked like he had before. Sweat-caked brow, peaceful expression. But the sheets below his throat were stained red. A gash ran across his throat, a dark red smile beneath his sleeping face. Sydney moved closer to the bed. It had to be some sort of joke. It couldn't be real. He'd been running wild an hour ago, yanking on her arms, pulling on her hair. She'd been so mad at him. She brought her hand forward, wanting to brush the hair out of his face, to tell him it was time to get up. She felt the warmth of the blood against Tripp's cold flesh. Then, the cold steel of a kitchen knife pressed against her throat. Folklorist Jan Harold Brunvand collected three different versions of The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs from 1971 to 1976, though he remarks that there are countless other versions. All center around a babysitter who isn't aware that a killer is in the house, murdering her charges. In a humorous take, the threatening phone calls are only a prank, while in another far more lurid version of the story, there are two teenagers in the house, one is maimed by the killer, and the final girl hears thumping upstairs. She investigates, only to discover that her friend's limbs have been severed, and she's trying to crawl away. Brunvan notes that while the phone is a pivotal element in the story, most versions have the killer calling from an extension inside the house, which was not a common setup, especially in the 70s. From Bye Bye Birdie onwards, the phone has been regarded as one of the most iconic tools of socialization for teenage girls. Even in an era without social media, chatting with friends on the landline after hours was one of the first forms of rebellion a teenager could find. It was a bid for a private life that her parents and teachers wouldn't know about. Folklorist Sue Samuelson points out that there are several elements of the story that are aimed specifically at reinforcing traditional gender roles. 
She contends that the man lurking on the top floor of the house, rather than outside or in another room, symbolizes man's dominance over women in the social hierarchy and the violent means by which he intends to exert his own dominance. He demands that she come upstairs to perform motherhood for him before he destroys her. Samuelson also mentions that babysitting is a job traditionally reserved for young women as a means of preparing them for raising children later in life. The babysitter's inability to realize the children are in danger is meant to hint at the deepest insecurities that future mothers may hold and also make a statement about putting children before a woman's own needs or potential career. While the story itself has patriarchal origins, the phone motif in The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs has been used to create two of the horror genre's most iconic final girls, Jill Johnson in 1979's When a Stranger Calls and Sidney Prescott in Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson's 1996 film Scream. The story has moved from a cautionary tale to a story of empowerment, but that empowerment only comes when the children are removed from the legend entirely. For that's the babysitter and the man upstairs' most consistent element of horror. The children are dead, and it's all your fault. So don't forget to check the children. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson.